0: Hello, I'm Amber Athey, Washington editor of The Spectator, and I'm here to tell you about our fantastic new election offer. Go to spectator.us slash election offer and subscribe to get three months free access to The Spectator US website and our new app available on the Apple and Google Play stores. Make sure you're getting the very best coverage and commentary in the run-up to November 3rd. Find out more at spectator.us/electionoffer.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Americano podcast. My name is Freddie Gray, and I'm the Spectator's US editor. And I'm here to tell you, as if you didn't already know, that the 2020 presidential election is now over, and Donald Trump appears to have lost. He isn't going away, however, not any soon. And it looks as though the last few weeks of a Trump presidency promised to be even more crazy, if that were possible, than the previous four or so years. We'll be discussing all that and more in the coming weeks. I'm joined today by Alan Bakari, who is the author of Deleted, Big Tech's Battle to Erase the Trump Movement and Steal the Election. And we're going to be asking if Big Tech really did sway the 2020 presidential election. Now, Alan, there's a lot of conspiracy theories sprouting all over the internet. To my perhaps slightly wet mind, it looks to me as though quite a few of them are exaggerated or going on very thin evidence. But your book isn't necessarily about that. Although perhaps we should start by talking about, you know, how credible do you think these theories of a, of a stolen election, as in actual ballot fraud, are?
0: Well, you know, I think there are a lot of allegations swirling about this election. It's not the first time this has happened. There were a lot of allegations about the uh, Bush v. Gore election as well. In fact, Jake Tapper wrote an entire book about it called The Plot to Steal the Presidency. So, you know, mainstream journalists have been talking about the problems with election integrity for a while. Democrats have been talking about it. And, you know, the Bush v. Gore election took... 37 days for uh, for Gore to concede, so I don't see the problem in waiting a little bit longer to investigate some of these allegations. Uh, You know, American presidential elections are very important things, perhaps the most important and consequential elections in the world. So that's that's what I'll say there. But of course, not every allegation is going to be substantiated. I suppose the
1: point that I imagine you'll agree with is that there's a reason why a lot of people are very suspicious about this election, because it does seem like big tech, particularly, and with the support of of legacy media, of TV media, has been on a sort of mission to undo the 2016 election. And that sounds like a crazy conspiracy theory, but there's quite a lot of evidence to back it up, is there not?
0: Well, it's certainly not a crazy conspiracy theory. We caught top leaders off Google on tape. We published that tape at Breitbart back in 2018. This was a tape of them right after the 2016 election, in utter dismay at the result. One Google executive talked about how he wanted to make the populist movement a blip in history, that he feared that if it was allowed to, you know, develop and metastasize, it it could lead to a world war or something catastrophic. Those are his words, a Google executive. Mm. So it's not a conspiracy theory when we literally have these people on tape.
1: One thing that you've picked up on a lot in your work is this, idea that they feel they need to big tech feels it sinned in a way by allowing populism to happen and they feel they
0: need to make amends that is essentially the case and it's a characterization of what they did or didn't do in 2016 it's been really encouraged by the mainstream media by liberal pressure groups they've made this point relentlessly out in the open again ever since 2016 and uh, my sources inside facebook and google who i interviewed for the book say much the same thing that there was an atmosphere of dismay and finger-pointing inside these companies. Many people felt they didn't do enough to stop Trump in 2016. And we, we saw the results of that. We saw, you know, so, many, so much leaked material from these companies, from Google and Facebook, showing the kind of things that they did after 2016. We saw an in- massive internal campaign inside Google, for example, to get Breitbart News, where I work, deplatformed from Google Ads. So there was all this organizing going on inside these companies in response to the Trump election. And I think we really saw the end result of that in the run-up to 2020. We saw Donald Trump's Twitter page repeatedly get censored, repeatedly get fact-checked. And nothing happened to Joe Biden, even even though Joe Biden, like many politicians, has made gaffes, has made exaggerated statements. That's a feature of politics. But we clearly saw only one candidate getting fact-checked and censored.
1: Going back to, I think it was back in 2015, wasn't it, Andrew Merkel was hot berating Mark Zuckerberg
0: for not controlling what people were saying on his, on his platform more. That's correct. And there's really been a growing worldwide backlash against the free and open internet that's been accelerating ever since 2015, ever since the rise of populism and the, the successes of populism that really began in that year and it does it does go worldwide in fact just a few days before the uh, the 2020 vote facebook took down the page of an entire political party in in new zealand so we're in this weird situation where a group of unaccountable oligarchs in silicon valley can essentially meddle in and manipulate political online political discourse not just in one democracy but in almost every democracy around the world where these companies are dominant which is most of them And
1: it certainly does seem to have intensified this year. And it's kind of amazing, actually, I think, to look at what Twitter has done. Let's just take Twitter in the last few months. You have the Hunter Biden story, which, you know, may have been a product of the fervid imagination of Rudy Giuliani. It doesn't seem like it was. But Twitter decided that it would block this story, the New York Post's big scoop, and then bar the New York Post from... Tweeting for a while and and then at the same time there was a lot of there's been a lot of blocking of Donald Trump's tweets in recent days about the fact this election was a fraud. Now, if Twitter were to apply its standards consistently, it would have done that about a lot of other things that have been said on Twitter by very prominent people of, the last of four years. I
0: mean, we've had Rachel Maddow for the past four years saying uh, Vladimir Putin was blackmailing Donald Trump into doing his bidding. There's absolutely no evidence for that. That's a crazy conspiracy theory. If you want to go even more abstract, you can say, well, there are people who believe that we're surrounded by these invisible forces that we can't see called patriarchy and white supremacy. And that sounds like a conspiracy theory to me. This is the problem with words like conspiracy theory people have different ideas of what they mean. You uh, singled out Twitter. One thing uh, that is off people's radar is that Twitter is being rewarded for this. So Jack Dorsey recently won an award from Adweek for uh, leading the charge against lies and hate speech on social media. So one of the things that the book gets into is this entire sort of web of incentives that is built up with politicians and NGOs and the media and pressure groups all trying to in- inflict negative attention on these companies or punish them if they don't censor enough and then also rewarding them when they, uh, when they succumb to the demands that these groups are making.
1: That's fascinating. What, what, what other examples are there of tech leaders being incentivized to, to censor and, and suppress information?
0: So in the book I discuss uh, the ad industry especially. I mean, many of there are uh, the umbrella organisations that represent digital ads they sort of led the charge right after 2016, demanding that these companies crack down on their platforms. And you often saw that when they didn't get their way, the big advertisers would boycott these platforms. So they boycotted YouTube in, I think, 2017, and they boycotted Facebook much more recently, just last year. Because they, uh, in the words of these ad companies, they weren't doing enough to clamp down on so-called extremist content and so-called hate speech. And this is obviously encouraged by the media, the media relentlessly went after YouTube ahead of that ad boycott. It really sparked that boycott back a couple of years ago. And they did the same to Facebook this summer. They're still doing it. They think they're saying Facebook isn't doing enough, say, to censor Donald Trump and his claims about the integrity of the elections. Because, you know, Facebook is not censoring him quite as much as Twitter. It's very interesting that in
1: that way that, I mean, I remember Jack Dorsey, I think, did a TED, wasn't so much a TED talk, but a kind of TED panel type thing. And he would, he would sort of, it was like a public act of contrition. He had to you know, promise that he was going to do better. And he was then given a round of applause. And I think the same thing, something similar happened to Zuckerberg in the wake of 2016 was they all had to sort of prostrate themselves before the media and say, look, we've, we've let the side down, we've let all this hateful speech appear
0: on our platforms and we're going to do better indeed and you know if you go right back to the very uh, early days after 2016 you'll find zuckerberg actually saying well i don't think fake news was that effective i think that's paraphrasing but he said you know it's kind of insulting to trump voters to say that they were just deluded by fake news on facebook that's, that's what, what his initial take was but you'll see well, that over time that, that that opinion changes and he starts to take the so-called fake news problem seriously because he sees that it's not going away and he's going to face relentless pressure from the media from democrats and from all these interest groups if he doesn't do something and his own employees by the way one of the things my facebook source told me is that right after 2016 there was all of this internal activism and internal organization inside facebook to do something about the so-called fake news problem and the so-called misinformation and election integrity problem and according to my source, that was led by the most anti-Trump people at the company, as you might expect. But he says the well was poisoned from the start because it was all these initiatives against misinformation and hate and fake news were led by extremely biased, extremely political people.
1: And with the election, there's there's obviously the the kind of very obvious tactic of, of, of blocking or, or, or flagging Trump tweets or on Facebook saying that this is not confirmed or sort of highlighting that what, what content it thinks is problematic. But there are more insidious ways in which social media giants
0: and big tech stop speech that they don't like. Can you tell us a little bit about those? So I'll give you two examples. One is, I think, is somewhere in between the visible and the invisible. You can find out about this if you know the right analytics tools but it's still quite a shocking fact. So six months before the 2020 election, Google made a major update to their search algorithm. And immediately after the update, clicks and impressions to Breitbart News on Google searches about Joe Biden, went to zero overnight, just collapsed. They'd previously gone up and down as you might expect search traffic to go, but then they went to zero. And they stayed at zero all the way until election day. And we got this data from Google's own analytics tool. We also reached out to them to find out if it was just some sort of mistake or error. And they said, they came back to us with a can statement saying, we regularly make updates to our systems, and this is, this is completely normal. So they were, in, they were intending to do this. And that's a very obvious example, I think, of election interference that you can see and you can verify with Google's own tools cutting traffic to zero on searches for one of the presidential candidates to one of the most, you know, widely read conservative sites on the internet. That's an obvious example. It's it's kind of visible. You can see it through Google's analytics tools. But I want to get to something that the more insidious stuff that you talk about as well, because one of the things that my Facebook source told me in the book is that Facebook became very interested in depolarization after the 2016 election, making America less extremist. This was how it was presented. And my Facebook source says, well, one of the things we can do is build a model of depolarization by which they identify the people on the platform who have gone from, say, the far right to the center over a period of time, analyze what they read on Facebook, analyze the videos they watched, the articles they clicked on, and then build a model of that activity to Put the right sort of content in front of other so-called extremist users and polarized users to move them towards the center as well. And this is something that I think people really, really need to understand about the tech companies. It's not like any kind of media bias we've seen in the past because they know so much about us. They know all about our day-to-day activity. They know all about the content that has the most impact on us. I mean, if I know, uh, you know, say, an undecided voter lives across the street from me and, you know, really cares about the Second Amendment. I can put up a sign in my yard saying, you know, Joe Biden's going to take all your guns and hope that persuades him. But tech companies can do so much more than that. Not only do they know what issues people are interested in, they also know who the undecided voters are, who the conservatives are, who the liberals are. And not only can they use that information to put, say, an article in front of them that is about the issues they care about and tries to nudge them in a certain direction. But then they can, if they don't click on that article, if it doesn't have an impact on them, if it doesn't change their behavior, they can change it up, put another one in front of them and another one and another one, each time testing to see which one has the biggest impact. So they can continually improve their systems of persuading and nudging people. They actually do it all the time to get us to buy products and click on ads. So why wouldn't they do that for political reasons. I mean, they have an incentive to, they have ideological reasons to, and there's no oversight or regulation that would prevent them from doing so.
1: That's very interesting because in 2012 there was a lot of talk about Obama's campaign and Facebook and how they'd used uh, what they call the power of friendship to help persuade voters to help drive out the vote, and this was seen as a, a very, very good thing. And then perhaps I've misunderstood it, but in 2016 something similar was done by perhaps Cambridge Analytica, perhaps other elements of the Trump campaign on Facebook. And it was quickly established that this was horrifying. This was the worst thing that had ever happened in democracy. People were being brainwashed, et cetera, et cetera. And so what you're saying there and what, what I've sort of noticed is that if the election goes one way, tech is seen as being this beautifully benign force that is helping to, to grow democracy
0: in this lovely way.
1: But if it goes the other way, it's brainwashing and it's evil. Is that, is that a fair assessment of what's going on?
0: Precisely. And you'll see the same attitude towards the media, you know. Fox News, a mainstream cable network, is bad because some of its hosts support Trump and everyone everyone else like these honourable journalists who are being unfairly attacked as fake news by the president. It's entirely determined by where your political standpoint is. By the way, that headline you mentioned, Facebook and the power of friendship, this was a headline written after the 2012 election. I actually cite that headline In the book, comparing it and contrasting it to the uh, headlines about Facebook we saw after 2016, of course, completely different, all about how Facebook allowed Russian meddling and fake news and extremism and all sorts of things. And that momentous media barrage against social media and tech companies continued for the next four years. It's still continuing. So the Trump election was really a turning point in how the media talked about these tech companies. It was total war. And you can see this by going back and looking at the headlines yourselves. Do you think that
1: 2020 has proven to be a watershed moment in terms of the willingness of big tech companies to overtly, a lot of the time, to overtly censor and to to be unashamed about the fact that they are stopping voices they don't like just because they don't like them, not because they are dangerous or actually inciting violence or anything like that?
0: Absolutely. And I think, again, we can see this out in the open, censoring the president of the United States. I think it was, it's now well over 50 times that Twitter has done it. Facebook does it as well, to a lesser degree, with fact checks. They've censored the Trump campaign's ads. Uh, I think it was 60 Minutes, the uh, the CBS show, that found uh, hundreds of Trump campaign ads had been taken down by YouTube. And I think I think this is... In normal circumstances, would consider almost everyone considered it as very unusual, very shocking that these unaccountable corporate executives are picking and choosing which of the president's messages can reach the public. I think that's they they want us to think it's normal, but I don't think that's normal at all. And I think if it was a Democrat president who was facing this. They would. There would be complete outrage on the other side. It's. It's remarkable that not a single one of Joe Biden's messages on Facebook or Twitter has ever, as far as I know, been been fact checked. I just don't see it. So yes, you you think they'd just do one just just to to show some sort of fairness, but they don't seem to feel the need to even do that. I'm just saying these these remarkable that uh, they're quite funny. People are creating pictures of uh, fact checks as they might appear in the past. So. Uh, there's a picture of uh, Galileo saying the earth is round fact checked by twitter the, uh, the the authoritative sources disagree yeah
1: <laughs> what what do you think could be done though i mean you, you seem to be a libertarian judging from from what i've read of you and it seems to me that only government and may, maybe it's too late even now for governments only governments have the power to try to stop big tech
0: companies imposing their politics on, on the platforms they, they own. Well, I'll correct you on a Libertarian. I haven't been a Libertarian for years. It is still my Twitter handle, and that's because- yeah, that's probably why I was confused. Yep. Yeah. unfortunately, if you change your Twitter handle, you lose your verified check mark, which uh, although the verified check mark is very uncool and unhip, it does actually improve your ranking and search results. So I rather want to keep it. So that's why I'm still uh, at Libertarian Blue on Twitter. But to your question about what could be done, I think it's, there's a very simple solution that everyone should demand. And by the way, I'll preface this by saying this, you know, we, we've talked about big tech's impact on the election, but there's a basic consumer fairness and business fair, fairness point to be made as well, which is if you run a physical business, you know, physical storefront, your landlord cannot come and evict you because they don't like your political, the political slogans you put in your window. You know, if he did, you could take him to court, You can get that overturned, and he would have to follow a legal process and get a court order first. But you can spend, you know, years, you can invest thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars into building up a Facebook page or a YouTube page. It can be your entire livelihood, and these tech companies can take it away with the snap of their fingers, and there's no due process available to people at all. So that's a point, I think, that goes beyond politics. Um, It's just a basic question of business and consumer fairness. But I will now finally get to your question. I think the solution is these tech companies should not be able to filter legal speech on behalf of their users. They can make filters that you can opt in, like Google Safe Search, which you can turn off off or on. But I think if it's legal, it should be up to users to decide. I think that's a very basic principle that most people, even most reasonable Democrats, will agree with. The problem is they've built all these filters over the past four years, filters on fake news, filters on hate speech, on misinformation that we can't see. We can't see how they operate. We can't see who's getting categorized as what. And we can't turn them off. Why can we turn off Google's obscenity filter, their safe search button, but we can't turn off their fake news filter or their hate speech filter? Pretty good question. I I don't really know what the
1: answer is. I I wonder, listening to you talk about the sources that you have at these big tech Companies, Do you get the sense that they still always believe that they're just doing good? Or do you think there's a sense of guilt now that among some of the giants that they know that what they're doing is shady and they need to cover it up as, as best they can?
0: Well, we certainly, I certainly uh, heard from my sources in Google that they completely shut down access to their all-hands meetings. The video recordings of their all hands meetings after we release after we leaked that one uh, that they had after the election. So uh, certainly inside Google, there's a recognition that if they're you know doing politically controversial things, there are people inside the companies who will leak that. So we've seen a, little bit, a bit of a clampdown there. But I, I think most of them think they are doing good, and not only that they're doing good, that they had a moral imperative to try and stop Trump from winning this time around. The few people inside these companies who are uncomfortable with what's going on, you know, it tends to be the more conservative leaning members of these companies, the very few of those, they can't speak out about it because when you speak out about it and you reveal yourself as a conservative, oftentimes what happens is that you end up like James Damore, the Google engineer who was fired for disagreeing with his company's culture of political conformity. You know, you might even end up blacklisted across the entire industry. So it's very hard for the people who disagree with the politicisation of these companies to actually challenge them from the inside. But of course, the one thing they have done, which is very valuable, and uh, which we wouldn't have otherwise, because there's no transparency with these companies, is, you know, they've leaked material to me, they've leaked material to other journalists. So we now have a sense of what these companies have been doing, and they deserve a a tonne of credit for that.
1: Yeah. Finally, I'd like to ask you, I mean, in 2016, a lot of Conservatives would say, after 2016, a lot of Conservatives would say, well, you know, this may have happened, but do you really think it affected the vote to which the answer was meant to be always no? Could we say that the the same thing about 2020? How much do you think tech's involvement in politics now actually affects how, if we take out the theories about the actual election process being disrupted by tech, how much do
0: you think big tech's attempts to sway the electorate work? Well, obviously in any election, there's all, there's all sorts of factors that will uh, influence the result, including you know, just world events like COVID. But I think you know all things being equal, you really can't, I think big tech might be the biggest variable in this election and in elections going forward because just where so many people get their news today. And also many, many people don't suspect that your list of Google search results might be biased or what appears at the top of your Facebook or Twitter feed might be biased, because there's this sense in the back of your mind, even though you know the companies might be left-leaning, that you somehow chose what appears in your feed because of who you follow, and you chose what appears in your Google results because of what you searched for. So it kind of deactivates our critical faculties and makes it easier for these companies to influence us. I certainly think that, you know, you've got to think about what an undecided voter will do. So if an undecided voter wants to find out more about Joe Biden or about Donald Trump, well, the number one source of new information, the main place people go to is Google. And we know Google shut off traffic and impressions to conservative sites like Breitbart News on that specific search result on Joe Biden searches. So I I don't think you can discount at all or underplay how massive of an impact that would have had. The fact that people searching for one of the candidates would have been incredibly unlikely uh, to encounter any conservative news. What you're saying is is we're all being brainwashed. Essentially, that that is the end result. And I, and I also wanna talk about the bans a little bit because there was incredible online momentum behind the populist movement on both sides of the Atlantic in 2016. There was a seemingly unstoppable movement of online influencers and independent journalists springing up and so many of them were just banned over the past four years. I was talking earlier about how Facebook and these other companies can invisibly influence people and how they were looking at depolarizing people, making it less likely for conservative content to appear in your feed is one of the ways in which they do that. And it's one of the things that my, one of my uh, sources used to work for Twitter and Google told me is that we all have this kind of quality score on social media and uh, our websites have it too. And this quality score determines where we're going to fall in the rankings. these platforms whether we're going to be seen or whether we're going to be buried on like the the thousands page where no one will find us and uh, in the past what would determine that score would be things like are you posting spam or malware or viruses that would lower your score and that score would tell the algorithms don't show this to users bury it or ban it but now of course that score is determined in part by are you posting misinformation are you posting hate speech are you posting fake news and are you following accounts or were you following accounts that got banned for those things? So every time one of these prominent accounts gets banned, which has happened so often over the past four years, there have been so many you know, Trump supporters with millions, sometimes tens of millions of followers who have been banned, that also sends a signal to the algorithm saying, well, all the accounts that followed that account, while you may not want to ban them, you should perhaps lower their score and make sure they don't appear as prominently in search results in news feeds. So Silicon Valley has actually developed although they won't call it this they'll frame it in seemingly neutral terms to give themselves plausible deniability like countering polarization or extremism or misinformation. But what Silicon Valley has built is a formula for censoring not just one or two people, but for suppressing entire political movements. Because every time a network node gets taken out and banned, it affects the entire network. Depolarization is an
1: extremely sinister word and concept. But I I wonder if You know, one would think that to some extent there would be alternatives to these networks that would be successful, but they don't seem to be able to. You hear a lot of talk about Parlay being a rival to Twitter where conservatives can go, but it doesn't seem to work. Is that because Parlay's tech is not very good? Is that because the tech giants have just so much command over everybody's attention that they are able to
0: stop other, other platforms developing? I think there are multiple reasons. One is just, you know, habit. We've all been using Google and these other companies for many decades, and we're used to it. I read a fascinating story a few years ago about how there's actually a much more efficient keyboard design than the, keyboard, than the QWERTY keyboard that we all use. But we continue to use the, the current keyboard, the, the normal one, because we're all just used to it. And there's also the fact that social media platforms in particular, maybe search engines less so, are kind of natural monopolies because you don't want to be on a social network that has you know, almost no people on it. You want to be on the social network that has everyone on it because the yeah. value of a social network comes from the size of its audience. And uh, the last thing I'll point out is that it's mainly conservatives right now who are being affected by this censorship. So when they go and join a conservative social network, they're almost self-censoring themselves because they're cutting themselves off from the undecided voters, from the politically non-aligned, from the uh, apolitical, who really have no reason not to use the uh, the current platforms if they're not following politics closely. Facebook as well. Publishers can't just cut themselves off from Facebook. It's just too massive of a market. So many conservatives are now in this uncomfortable situation where they're forced to be on these social media platforms where you can't really get away from them because if you do your competitors will just have just a massive advantage so they're forced to play in a game that's rigged
1: yes well adam i'm very sorry i called you a libertarian that was a that was a, <laughs> <laughs> that was but but the very fact that you you are not changing your handle because you need to be more prominent, is is sort of proof of what you're saying, right,
0: in a way. Precisely, precisely, yes. It's, it's very annoying. I have been talking to Twitter, asking, them, you know, can I change my handle and still be verified, please, but they haven't uh, sorted it out yet. Well but uh yeah we'll we'll see if that eventually happens. We
1: should watch this space. You're not going about well to
0: making yourself a friend of these companies, by judging by your book. No indeed, although they, they still reply to my emails when I reach out to them, or at least their press their press team do. Their press team's probably very sick of me at this point, uh, probably email them three times a day about accounts that have been banned. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Adam, thank you very much for coming on Americano. Um, Please come on again.